Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson from very beautiful but very hot Charlottesville, Virginia. Had a great post-July 4th time. And I know that my friend, Kara, did with her family as well. I did, Gerard. I actually, I was on the road this weekend. I got to visit my best friend from high school who now is living in New York. Ate a hot dog, <laughs> which I never do. <laughs> it was, you know, it didn't really live up to the hype, but whatever. Probably if I was going to eat a hot dog once a year, I should choose a better hot dog. But, um, and, and spent some time with family. And, and here we are. Back to the daily grind, but highlight of my day, this podcast with you. So what's Sounds going on? Good. What's on your mind this July 4 or post-July 4? Well, we end up spending time uh, before and the day after with a family in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, which you know is a very historic spot. Had a chance to go to Bush Gardens and watched a very wonderful um, fireworks show. A lot of people, I'm sure 20,000 plus, so we waited in lines for rides, but it was just good to be with family and friends. So we enjoyed it and came back to Charlottesville. And as you say, we are back in the grind, but we're grinding with good juice uh, when we do our show together. So what is on your mind in terms of your story of the week? Well, I mean, actually, this is something I think a lot about um, during my day job, a fabulous woman that I worked with, I'll give her a shout out. Her name is Divya. She does a lot of work on closing the digital divide. And that is what, um, my, well, my, actually the title of my piece is closing the homework gap. So no child is left offline. Get it? Get the little pun. So like no that. child is left behind because we couldn't let it go. But so closing the homework gap. So no child has left online. And this is about, it's from future of learning and it's a new survey, it finds that 15% of kids in lower income families still lack reliable internet at home. Now, Gerard, I don't think that headline is really much of a surprise. But really, what this article is about is, you know, understanding how we need to learn from the pandemic to continue building this muscle for equipping kids, not just, and teachers, not just for virtual learning, but for for the fact that we're going to be, even if kids are face-to-face in school, we're going to be leveraging the internet, leveraging technology for things like homework. And it's a, it's a really important thing. Now we've got I don't know. It's hard for me to even count how many federal programs have come down the pike in an effort to get families connected, get school districts connected. There's the EBBP and the EC something, the ECFS, and there, 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 there's so many. <laughs> the of alphabet them, right? And yeah. One of the, yeah, exactly. And one of the things I was actually just talking about on um, on a webinar that I did with the campaign for grade level reading is the fact that. It's almost as if localities, including families, right, need a navigator to help them understand what services they qualify for, right? So for, because for some people, it's about getting online, period. And for other people, it's about simply being underconnected. So here's mm. a question, Gerard, to get at what it means to be underconnected. At any given time, if your family is if you're if your uh, two school age children at home, if your girls are doing their homework or doing an assignment, how many people do you think are in how many devices in your house? Four. Exactly. And there are probably a couple of you using things that suck great bandwidth. And you might have other things going on in the background of your house. I don't know, like, yep. hey, Google is a favorite here. That's all. My kids talk to Google more than they talk to me sometimes, right? All of that stuff. 
requires requires bandwidth. So a lot of families are underconnected. So it's not just enough to say that um, that you know, oh, you, here you go, you have an internet connection. Now go do your homework, kiddo. In fact, in this survey, they found that sixty five percent of um, of families that they surveyed who fell into this um, black and Hispanic camp, um, families living below the poverty line, 65% said that their children couldn't fully participate in remote learning because they lacked access to a computer or internet. And that doesn't just mean that they didn't have broadband. It means that they couldn't use the darn thing because there wasn't enough bandwidth to do the kinds of things that mm. school needed. So right. I think that this is, it's a really important issue. And I am just waiting to see um, who's going to come out with the, you know, like how to for parents. I mean, a lot of the parents that qualify, for example, for the programs that are going to make internet um, accessible and affordable also qualify yep. for other programs in this country. So I want to have a robust conversation about how we streamline some of these programs and how we help families and schools and libraries and all of those touch points for kids navigate these various programs so that we can actually make some progress in closing the digital divide. Because to date, it's been a lot of talking and not a whole lot of action, right? And and the patchwork efforts that we did during the pandemic uh, aren't going to hold for families. So You bring up a really good point about bandwidth versus ac uh, access to a actual handheld device or computer and the internet. Uh, we know that we, in fact, on one of our shows, we read a, a story of the week where Philadelphia initially said there's not much we can do, and then they decided to provide all the students with a computer. They even put um, vans in certain neighborhoods yeah. uh, in order, to, order for them to connect. Uh, and that was important, but there's still a bandwidth issue because of the number of people who are involved. So I think that there's probably 25 entrepreneurs who are like one click away from providing uh, schools, both public and private, those who have pods, those who have uh, micro schools, to do something differently. You know, one great thing about uh, us is that when we find ourselves pushed back, uh, backs to the wall, we push back, and the entrepreneur is going to find a way to do it. Uh, it's a tough story, uh, but it's also a reality check uh, of what we've got to do. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up, and I think mine is also a reality check, and it's about students who have special needs. And this is from your state of Michigan uh, oh, for students. Yes, had to go ahead and do it. So for students, grades 7, 9, 10, and 12 are suing the Michigan Department of Education and the Ann Arbor Public School System over claims of inadequate special education during the pandemic. Uh, basically, the family said in their um, claim to the court is that not only did the schools not provide their children the free, adequate public education that they are legally entitled to, um, according to IDEA, but some of the um, I, um, IEP programs or individualized education programs were actually changed without the authorization of the families. And so they filed a lawsuit, and they said, uh, this is going to be a big problem for us. And they said, the reason we're suing is because not only did our students fall behind, but all four students, in fact, fell behind dramatically. Uh, there simply was not enough input from the teachers and others to make sure their students received the services they need. So they said that uh, we're going to sue. Now, this is a really big issue because we know that the individuals with Education and Disabilities Act turned 45 last year. Uh, it was actually enacted in 1975. It was signed by 
President Gerald Ford, who in fact uh, was a Congress member from Michigan, also played football there. And it was the first real push for the federal government to say, listen, we have millions of children in our country who have disabilities, but they're not getting an appropriate education. So Congress pushed that forward in 1975. Like many of our federal laws, they go through multiple amendments. There was one in 1986. The amendment in 1986 said they were, they were, that IDEA also had to provide uh, services to children born with disabilities. Prior to that law, it only applied to children ages uh, age three and above. You had another big change in 1990. Uh, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act actually became IDEA as we know it, and there was a requirement that students actually have an IEP. There was another amendment in 1997, uh, made some changes, and there was another one in 2004. So if you look at 75, uh, 1975 to 2018-19, there are approximately 7.4 million children in the United States who are receiving um, IEDA services, roughly 14% of all public school students. And so Michigan is a state with a pretty sizable number of students, percentage-wise and number-wise, who receive um, services under IDEA. And why does it matter? Well, for one thing, we know that only 7% of students uh, with disabilities actually graduate from college. We know that a number of students and who reach high school uh, don't finish or drop out beforehand. We also know that students who have disabilities, once they become adults, find themselves involved in the criminal justice system. So those things are worth mentioning because this is not only an impact on the four families. They're doing it as a class action lawsuit so they can bring in all the students in Michigan who qualify for IDEA services and to let people know that, you know, what happens in grades 7 and 9 and 10 and 12, they matter for students who don't have um, an IEP or who don't qualify for the services. But for those who do, we know the numbers just multiply in the terms of the challenges they have. I'm sure that a number of the teachers who were responsible for these students um, did what they could, but there were a lot of factors that went into play. So um, they're suing, and uh, we're going to watch this with great interest. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear the title of your story is like you, you cross the parent of a child with special educational needs at great peril because these folks have learned how to fight really hard for their kids and they have learned to navigate a complex and complicated system in so many cases to get the services that children need. And I would say, Gerard, just anecdotally, that this story um, and the and the claims that the plaintiffs are making really rings true to the experience of um, so many of just personal friends that I've talked to throughout the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I think that I think that teachers were in a horrible position and, you know, in many cases, districts, teachers, others might not have been able to provide the services that were outlined or prescribed in the IEP. But um, there's a big question about the extent to which we, um, we as a society <laughs> sort of shunt these children to the side. And when I say these, of course, it's poor, poor choice of sure. words there. But what I mean is, you know, children with, um, with exceptional needs and that it becomes easier to say, well, I just can't do this because I have to focus on all these other things. And, and if we don't have somebody dedicated to figuring out the how do we do this, <laughs> then we are just letting so many children, we are, we are not meeting um, what is, in fact, a, a legal responsibility to make sure that everybody has access. And so I'm well, going to be really interested to see where this goes. 
Well, any other families in Michigan who are listening to this um, should go to um, respectability. Uh, that's our webpage. Well, respectability.org. Uh, uh, it's a nonprofit organization headquartered in Maryland, and uh, the goal really is to fight the uh, stigmas and the challenges put upon people who have disabilities. But it also is for you know the seven million children who find themselves in our K-12 system in need of IED, uh, IDEA services. Uh, I happen to be a board member, and so I'm giving a shout out to Jennifer Masrani, uh, who is the founder and president. Uh, she's got a wonderful story of being a middle class mom who uh, had a son with special needs, and she had just a dog of a time uh, trying to navigate the system to get her son services. Uh, she was finally able to do so, and then she said, well, if I'm having a tough time and I've got resources in a network, what about for the other families who don't, for the families who work, for the families who have multiple children with disabilities? And so she started Respectability. I'm glad to be a part of the board. And if you go to the webpage, there are a number of um, resources, uh, including a handbook uh, written by one of our fellows uh, who provides what teachers can do to work with students with special needs. In fact, she is a uh, special education teacher herself. And uh, we have a video uh, from two years ago, uh, you can find on our webpage where I interviewed four people who talked about their experiences. So respectability is one place to uh, look for people in Michigan, but also New York uh, and other places where this challenge is finding its, uh, its way through the courts. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Gerard. Now, while we're doing shout-outs, you mentioned a name that, um, that brought a smile to my face because you, you uh, reminded us that it was President Gerald Ford who signed IDEA into law. And I have to share with you that I have a seven-year-old who is inexplicably obsessed with Gerald Ford. <laughs> Really? Actually, okay. I know, right? It's it's not the most common uh, president. <laughs> I, I think that um, it's because when we visit home, when we visit my home, where my parents are and stuff, we drive by, I believe, the Gerald Ford Presidential Library, or we at least see signs for uh-huh. it. Which has mm-hmm. just prompted my child to study everything you can about that man on Mystery History Day at school. Uh, so I, I think it's fascinating. There is, um, there, yes, there is some, I now know more about President Ford than I ever thought I would have reason to know. Gerard, we are up for some great conversation after this because we are going to be speaking with Susan Patrick. She is the president and CEO of Aurora Institute and co-founder of Competency Works. I'm excited for this conversation because, boy, if we're going to be talking about competency-based education and how we're rethinking the way we do things, this is the person um, to talk about it with. So coming up right after the break. Listeners, we are lucky to have with us today Susan Patrick. She is the president and CEO of Aurora Institute and co-founder of Competency Works, providing policy, advocacy, publishing research, developing quality standards, and driving the transformation to personalized competency-based education forward. She is a Pahara Aspen Fellow and was a USA Eisenhower Fellow in 2016. Susan is the former director of the Office of Educational Technology at the U.S. Department of Education and served as legislative liaison for Governor Hull of Arizona. She served as legislative staff on Capitol Hill. Patrick holds a master's degree from the University of Southern California and a bachelor's degree from Colorado College. Susan Patrick, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I mean, no better time than now as we are 
reflecting on what has happened, reflecting on the fact that maybe there was some good to come of what happened in the past year, then to talk to somebody who is deep into competency-based education, something that I hope we can really touch on, what it means, what you're doing, how, how states are adapting to this. Let's first go to the last year, as I said, from which we're trying to learn so much. So prior to the pandemic, nearly 3 million K-12 students in the U.S. had an online schooling experience, and that was up from 1.5 million in 2009. And now, of course, we've seen what happened during the pandemic, who sort of emerged as being able to deliver in terms of digital learning. And sometimes it wasn't just states, it was districts and localities. But we also really saw pretty clearly who was lagging behind. Love to know your read on the overall quality of the remote and blended learning models that you've seen during the pandemic. Thank you, sure. It's, it's important to uh, note that there is quite a distinction between a delivery model like online and blended learning and, and what happened with remote learning during the pandemic. And really where my research over the last 20 years of online and blended learning has, has led me to really ask big questions about the future of education towards a system that's more competency-based. Um, your question's really focused on online learning, so I just wanted to make sure I made that distinction that about half of the states had statewide online learning programs uh, and there was at one time a digital state survey that ranked those states. Uh, leading states are certainly Florida, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, North Carolina. Um, but I might consider New Hampshire as a key leader because mm -hmm. um, New Hampshire did some structural things as well as start an online learning program that's fully competency-based to create more flexibility from seat time, their online learning programs called the New Hampshire Virtual Learning Academy Charter School, and students can actually take a unit online. So imagine if you're studying algebra and there's one part of the algebra unit you don't fully understand. Instead of just moving on to the next one, you can enroll in a unit online with a teacher remotely. Um, and this is a program they've had around for more than 10 years. They, students can take online courses as well as engage in full-time online learning. Um, some of the states that are further behind, um, it's hard because every state is in their own place and their own policy, but California is a state that is um, really a, a little further behind and the districts that were offering more innovative educational models in California have been asking for more policy flexibility for years flexibility from seat time policies to be more competency-based, flexibility in their digital learning policies to allow them to offer online courses and online programs to districts that are beyond just contiguous districts. Um, and so as, as we experienced with COVID, um, we saw a large variety in the overall quality of remote and blended learning. Uh, we published quality standards for online learning, and it's really key to have high-quality teachers that have received the kind of training and professional development to be able to change their instructional model online, to be able to assess students based on different forms of evidence online, and to use online learning platforms 
that um, manage discussion boards asynchronously and synchronously. So what we saw during the pandemic for a large part were some schools and some school districts that needed to shift really quickly that had never trained their teachers to teach online, that had never designed courses to be online. And so we have to be really um, careful to, to notice that the technology tools that can support more effective teaching and learning were not always used in these um, rapid shifts to remote learning. Um, and, and that a lot of credit needs to be given to states and to districts and schools that had been working to make shifts to high quality online and blended teaching far before the pandemic happened. Yeah, and, and you pointed out Florida at the outset as saying a state that was sort of, that was getting it right. And and of course, Florida was well poised because their Florida virtual school, um, you know, it was long existing and has gotten Florida through through hurricanes, et cetera. It, you know, there have been natural disasters before COVID-19 um, where online learning has come in handy. And of course, they were able to train teachers, I think, to your point, pretty quickly. Um, Susan, before we, I have got sort of a two-part question here because I think some of our listeners might be craving a real definition of competency-based education. So if you could give us that. And then at the same time, the second part of my question is, you know, as we think about whether it was before COVID or, or in this, I don't know if we're in a post-COVID moment, but we're in a post-something moment, um, you know, we're still facing wide achievement gaps. We're facing NAEP scores that tend to be flat um, or down, especially for our lowest performers in many cases. Um, to your mind or to your research, I should say, how does a competency-based education help us address some of these problems? Yeah, so it's important to know what do we mean by competency-based education. So um, 10 years ago, in 2011, we pulled together more than 100 innovators across the United States that were leading competency-based schools or competency-based systems. And um, some of those were what you might think of as traditional in-person schools that were just making that big shift to competency-based learning. And, and a few others, like Florida Virtual School you mentioned, were designed from the get-go to be competency-based. So what do we mean? Um, we have a five-part definition, and the first part is that learning objectives are clear and explicit. So students, when they walk into school or when they sign into school every day, Every learning objective and standard is clear and explicit. All students are held to those same high standards. The second is when students are assessed, and often assessment is always open. Well, if I just finished a unit on fractions and I feel like I've mastered it, I'm ready to be assessed, I get an assessment done by, by a teacher or a qualified educator who is giving me feedback immediately on whether I got it or not. And if I didn't get it, then this is key for competency-based education. I get immediate support until I can demonstrate mastery. So I get to try again. It also means that students are not only building core academic knowledge that they need, but they're also building the skills for learning how to learn, for learning how to make decisions about their learning or taking on what we call learner agency or student agency. And so this more holistic approach to competency-based learning means that students are moving ahead only when they demonstrate mastery and there's some flexibility in the pacing and the use of time. 
Time's still important because you need students to be able to stay on track. But basically, a competency-based system ensures that students are demonstrating mastery as part of the learning process, and failure is not an outcome. So if a student doesn't get it the first time, they get help until they do demonstrate that mastery. So if you compare this to the way that many states, many districts continue to have policy that time is a proxy for learning. So you take a, a course or a subject for one hour, for one day, with one teacher and one textbook with kids lined up in rows, and some students may get a 90% on an assignment and other students may get a 60% or an 80%. We're still allowing students to move ahead to the next day if they've missed 20% of the content or even 40%. Why do we wait an entire year for a student to fail algebra, an important gateway class? In a competency-based system, you know where you are every day and you're getting that feedback. So if you look at our traditional school system, it causes you to ask some pretty fundamental questions about the way we are focused on time and actually not learning outcomes, <laughs> right? How do we have students graduating from high schools with a diploma in their hand, with huge gaps in their learning, going on and enrolling in community college or four-year college to be tested and to see that they need basic remediation, basic read, they're not proficient in basic reading, writing, or math, and then those students are having to go on and pay tuition. But we are investing in a system which awards credits based on time and not learning. And following, I say that there are a lot of online learning programs in states and districts and schools out there that are replicating these time-based practices in yeah. their online programs. So trying to change the conversation, like I said, and moving on beyond, yes, technology is only is only in service of a human design, right? And if we as human beings, if we as education leaders are designing for mastery for all students, then that is going to have different results. When young people haven't demonstrated mastery, when they haven't developed the knowledge and the skills they need, honestly, it's our employers, our communities are, are paying the price and students are paying the price too. Yeah, and, and to the point that you made earlier, it's if we're going to shift to a system that rewards competency instead of seat time, there's really a lot of flexibilities that states need to enjoy because we've built school systems around this idea that you you put you put your bottom in a seat for a certain amount of time and you've earned your degree. And you might be told you're doing well and you're one of the smartest in the schools, in fact, and then you then you discover that yeah, you didn't master algebra. Um, but I, so I want to I want to pick that up though because whether it is competency based education or uh, just online learning itself, you're going to have a lot of folks that claim that okay that's good for some but it's inequitable it's not good for others or maybe it doesn't work for this group of students who lives in a certain place or you can't possibly do it with very little kids in early childhood programs or students with special educational needs. Can you talk a little bit about? how um, online learning and, and how competency-based education when designed for online learning can work for everybody or, or can it work for everybody? Well, I think you have to separate out competency-based education as a system that ensures everybody gets mastery. 
So I'm not sure how you can make the argument that it's not for everyone unless you're intentionally don't want everyone to get the mastery. And I don't think that's what we mean here. I think we want everybody to get to mastery in our education system. On online learning, when, um, you know, one reason we had such a mixed bag of quality with online learning experiences in the past year is that we hadn't already shifted the instructional models themselves, the pedagogical approaches. Um, and so, in some of the cases we saw during COVID, it wasn't uh, a high quality experience. So we have to be really clear on what we mean by high quality online learning. So if online learning is designed with high quality teachers with modern contemporary instructional approaches and it's using online pedagogy, then you ask students and parents what they prefer as their instructional modality, then you're going to find some parents who want to learn online. And there have been studies in states like Colorado that have looked. There are a wide variety of reasons that some parents really want to enroll in online programs, whether they're um, athletes and want flexibility, whether they're students that have special needs and they prefer an online environment, um, whether they're students that have per particular um, preference for that kind of flexibility, there are lots of different reasons for it. And I, I don't think that um, a delivery model in and of itself should dictate every student should have an in-person experience or every student should have an online or blended experience, but that these opportunities should be available to all students and we should focus on whether we're providing high quality uh, learning. I mean, there have been programs around in, in the pre-K example since the 70s with, um, with, you know, TV, radio, game-based learning, there are different ways for students to learn. And so we need to make sure that every teacher who is teaching in their environment has received the training that they, they need and um, that every student should be getting the training to ensure that students meet, uh, meet mastery and have the ability to do project-based learning and performance assessments as well as teaching online flexibility with the online platforms that are out there. We, we know that there are tools that can help pinpoint where students are, especially with basic skills like numeracy and literacy. Um, these tools are really helpful for teachers when they're not sure where students are after, after a, a, a summertime. The best programs in states are programs like VLAX that have online schools that are designed from the inception to be competency-based, allow for options like project-based, anytime, anywhere learning. In um, more and more programs, you're seeing states uh, that have, have policies to support more innovation. Um, they're creating innovation zones, more seat time flexibility, and the ability to offer um, new, new kinds of uh, learning that happens even in internships, paid internships, and after-school programs, as well as online, blended, or in-person. 
So, Susan, one of the reasons we were so excited to have you join us today is because you're one of the few people in the United States who not only understands online learning from a research perspective, but you've got state experience going to Arizona, national experience, U.S. DOE, and you're also an entrepreneur. So looking forward to the question I'm going to raise for you right now. So let's go back at least a decade. Uh, we've seen large you know, K-12 federal investments uh, coming from uh, Washington, D.C., whether it was through Race to the Top, Every Student Succeeds Act, and now multiple rounds of COVID funding. So as you see it, how would you grade the overall quality and results of the K-12 policymaking coming from D.C. at this point? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that one fundamental question we should be asking is, regardless of the source of the funds, are the funds being invested in our future, or are they being invested in school models of the past? And I would say my analysis is that the answers or the solutions that are coming out right now are largely based on old ways of schooling. And that's really disappointing because we have an opportunity not to snap back to old ways of teaching and work and learning, but to leapfrog forward um, to help prepare students for their future. And when you look at the kinds of policies that um, come um, at, at the federal level and sometimes at the state level, there is a growing recognition with the rapid changes, um, the rapid pace of change in our society that big government structures can no longer adapt fast enough to the kinds of changes needed. They're no longer flexible enough. And we're seeing that firsthand. It's really um, important to start to shift decision making to local levels, even regional levels, um, and the state where we can adapt faster to the growing changes. So what states are starting to do in terms of state policy, um, states like Kentucky, states like Utah and others are setting up, their legislatures are setting up innovation zones for education so that local communities can come together. Many communities are coming together, redefining success with the profile of a graduate, but also wanting to say, okay, what are the metrics for success look like? What does it look like to have a really different anytime, anywhere teaching and learning that's gonna meet our students' needs, that are gonna meet kids where they are? and start to um, innovate. They're starting to uh, innovate assessment models. They're starting in Colorado to do um, some student-centered learning accountability pilots. So uh, the big idea is you've got um, states like Kentucky with innovation zones and we're seeing rural districts just do some amazing modern <laughs> future-focused teaching and learning. In Utah, they've set up um, you know, uh, 15 years ago, digital learning task forces that resulted in expansion of, of high quality online learning programs. But in Utah, more recently, they set up task forces for competency-based education saying, how do we take this to the next level? They now have competency-based pilots and they're working on the Utah portrait of a graduate, which is a broader definition of the knowledge academic knowledge and the skills that students need for success. So you're seeing this shift um, really from the ground up 
from communities and localities saying we're not moving fast enough to transform our education systems to be relevant for our students and, and for our economy and our workforce. So this move towards innovation, towards competency-based pathways in Alabama, they are looking at a lifelong continuum of learning. So how do you create a competency-based system across K through 12, across career and tech ed, through higher ed and even into the workforce and rethink your licensing and credentialing systems. And it's not like you get, it's not like getting rid of everything. It's like, how do you decouple what doesn't work and recouple it? So almost like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts do for badging. How do we mm -hmm. badge numeracy? How do we badge literacy? How do we know we have the skills all the way through leading up to those professional licenses and maybe even rethinking our, our credentials in, in high school and in community college and college too? And that's pretty, that's pretty excited. They've started the work in Alabama, Washington State, and others are, are having similar conversations. So you mentioned Kentucky and Utah, let's add in Alabama. Were they involved with this work pre-COVID or did COVID prompt maybe something that was already going or just it prompted up all of a sudden? It's pre-COVID, pre-COVID. Okay. Kentucky, this work started in 2012, yes, in Utah, 2016, Alabama, more recently. And the thing was they had already started working on these solutions pre-COVID and COVID has just accelerated them, being much more future focused, and and the reality of how needed it is has has become very clear. I, it, in fact, there was I don't know if you saw this Heart Research survey that said ninety one percent of parents across the U.S. want us to reimagine education right now. We have never had that kind of parent demand for transforming learning, and it's here. And we really need solutions that work on, on creating a path forward for the future for our schools and for our kids. And it's possible because it is happening in pockets all over the U.S. And we know that often states and local leaders may say we want to do this, but we don't have enough money. We know with uh, the you know billions are going to be invested into states from COVID. At least that's taken some of the money conversation off the table. But it's also worth noting that a few weeks ago, uh, the census, uh, U.S. Census released a um, report, and or it was a report by um, other groups. But they basically said that uh, income or revenue for schools uh, increased 5%, largest in uh, a decade. And so at least the money train for this conversation is moving in the right direction. Let me leave you with one more question. So we've got 20 plus gubernatorial elections that are gonna take place in the you know, next 18 or so months. If you were giving advice uh, to incoming governors, and we know how important education is, K-12 and higher ed uh, to their budget, what are two policy levers you say they need to pull uh, in order to make their state competitive and innovative? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical in terms of education. If I was coming in as governor, I would really want to engage in a meaningful conversation around what is the purpose of education in our state right now and if is what we have right now fit for purpose. And I think the answer they're going to see pretty clearly is that parents the workforce, businesses, communities want something different. And so governments, 
and states need to get focused on leapfrogging. They need to get focused on leapfrogging from where we are now to, and, and learning ecosystems might be a, a confusing term, but it really means learning that can happen anytime, anywhere. And it will require work like what Governor Ivey is doing in Alabama on aligning K through 12 higher ed, career tech, and the workforce. Um, when they start having that conversation, states actually can do the work. They can redefine student success. They can get moving on moving their systems to competency-based systems and, and really starting to focus on every, every student's getting the mastery, um, you know, a focus on mastery. We, we just can't snap back to old systems that have failed us right now. We really need to create a future-focused vision and there will be long-term uh, long needs and short-term steps to re-examine what we're doing and make sure that our kids can have a prosperous future. Well, on that note, Kara and I thank you for joining us today. Uh, you provide, as usual, wonderful information, a good mix of stats, uh, examples from the state, examples from the federal government, but always use it in an entrepreneurial lens to help us think differently about how to talk about education, how to, to deliver it. And for those who are listening, this is definitely one person that you should uh, go to when you're looking for advice. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So Kara, my tweet of the week is from our friend Annie Rothenham, and he's talking about infrastructure and all the spending. And he said, guess what? You know what's a part of infrastructure? Transportation. And so Andy, <laughs> good shout for you. I gotta, I gotta say yes. Double shout out for you, Andy. As I look uh, about two, three blocks behind my backyard is the uh, the MBTA here in Boston, the Green Line, D Line. Been down for about two weeks. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Transportation. <laughs> Thank you very much, Gerard. Next week. We are going to be speaking with Dr. Morgan Hunter, research fellow at the Independent Institute in California, and um, with Dr. Victor Davis Hansen and Dr. Williamson Evers, co-author of the white paper, Is It Time for a 490 BC Project? High Schoolers Need to Know Our Classical Heritage. So looking forward to that, Gerard. Until next week, uh, find some air conditioning. Stay happy. And we'll be looking forward to the um, finished version of your dissertation. <laughs> Thanks a lot.